Well, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of John, John chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 18, a message I've entitled, Hail the Incarnate Deity. Hail the Incarnate Deity. Now, you've probably heard that line before. Maybe you don't remember exactly where that's from. It's actually from a very famous Christmas carol that was written by one Charles Wesley back in 1739. He originally entitled this Christmas carol, A Hymn for Christmas Day. We know it as Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And that's the first line of the song, and that's a refrain that's repeated in the song. But that's actually not the first line that Charles Wesley originally wrote. His fellow Methodist and uh, partner in ministry, George Whitfield, some 15 years later, changed the original line to Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Here was the original line Charles Wesley wrote. It was this, Hark how all the welkin ring. Does anybody know what a welkin is? Yeah, I didn't either. I had to look it up. Welkin is actually an old English, a very archaic word that was used in English to refer to the sky. It comes from a German word for clouds, which is wolken, or as they would say in Germany, wolken, right? You thought that was Mr. Spock. No, no. Wolken means the clouds in the sky. You Star Trek fans will get that. And I'm sure George Whitfield changed the words because he knew no one wanted to sing Hark how the Vulcan ring, right? That is not very melodic. My title comes from the second verse. Here's the second verse. Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And so really, as we come here into the prologue, the last section of these first 18 verses that John writes to introduce the rest of the 21 chapters of his gospel account, we are getting to the very apex of the prologue, the very climax of what he's getting toward, and that is incarnate deity, that God, the everlasting God, the creator of all that exists, took on human flesh. The very one who created the angelic beings who for eons and eons received the worship of those angelic beings is now a human being. God enters creation. Well, let's read how John describes it in verses 14 through 18. This is the word of the living God. Hear it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now, this concept of the incarnation, God taking on human flesh, it's summarized in that statement there in verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In our study together, we've noted the significance of that word, word. That when John uses the word, it has tremendous amount of weight behind it. 
The word word refers to the divine reason of God, the divine speech of God, the divine truth of God, the divine knowledge of God. This idea of word was really a philosophical concept for the Greek people. They had this concept of reason and that there was a divine reason, a divine logos, a divine word that was keeping order in the universe. For the Jews, it was a theological concept that the word was divine speech, the revealed truth of God through his word. And then John expands on this. He's saying the word is no longer conceptual, it's actual. The word is no longer just a philosophical concept or a theological concept. It's literal, it's personal, it's physical. The word became flesh. And then John expands on the idea with the next phrase, dwelt among us. John employs a verb form of a noun here for dwelt among us with a word that means tent or tabernacle. What John's literally saying is that this God of the universe, the creator of all that exists, he pitched his tent on earth. He came among us. He tabernacled among us. And I believe, no doubt, John is drawing our attention back to the Old Testament tabernacle, that tent of meeting, as it was called in the Old Testament, where God dwelt with the Israelite people. The message paraphrase, I find it interesting, of this verse 14 puts it like this. It says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I like that. He came to be with us. He dwelt with us. The truth of the matter is this. The depth of Jesus's incarnation is so much more than just God taking on the appearance of humanity or God putting on human clothes. It's much more than just God taking a walk in our shoes. Jesus was fully and completely a man. He was completely and fully a human being. When Jesus, the person who always existed, who always was, who always the eternal word of the universe, who was upholding the universe by the very word of his power, this same Jesus became a baby in his mother's arms, nestled, vulnerable, dependent upon her. And this reality, we talk about it, we've discussed it, we celebrate it at Christmas time. It's really too deep for knowledge. It's beyond our capacity of comprehension. And there's a question that naturally arises when we start thinking about the incarnation, the God of the universe becoming a man. The question is this, why? <laughs> why? Why did he do it? What motivated him to go to such great lengths? Well, the answer to that why question is really in our text at the end of verse 18. It's this, the purpose is so that he would make him known. Why did Jesus come? To reveal God, to make God known. I've told you before, Jesus is the greatest revelation of God, and Jesus came to make him known. Fundamentally then, what the incarnation is, Jesus coming to make God known, Jesus coming to reveal God is to make us aware, to inform us of the nature of God, of the character of God, of who God is. And so, the incarnation is an expression of God's nature. God is light. And so we've learned in this study, the light shines in the darkness. That's simply what light does. 
God is love. God is gracious. And so God extends grace to we who are sinners. God is merciful. God is compassionate. And I believe the greatest thing of, about who God is, the greatest description of his character is just this. God is love. And Jesus came because God loves us. This too is too deep for understanding. The Apostle John, who wrote the gospel we're studying, also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, those epistles we're familiar with, and also the book of Revelation, the last book in our Bible. He was known as the apostle of love. Notice how he described the purpose behind the incarnation in 1st John 4, 9. He put it this way, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. The love of God is manifest in the incarnation. It's God's love disclosed in a powerful and profound way. And from our focal text this morning, I want us to consider three ways God discloses himself to us so that we can hail the incarnate deity. The incarnation, first of all, reveals this. Number one, it is a manifestation of glory. Jesus' incarnation, taking on of human flesh, it is a manifestation of glory. Again, the text says, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. When you hear the word glory in regular language and vernacular, when people use that term in our society, what comes to your mind? Glory. Glory. Webster's Dictionary defines the word glory in this way. Public praise, honor, or fame. Glory in our vernacular is public praise, honor, or fame. We, we use those terms glory and fame interchangeably. And so we think of glory in our world. We think of often celebrities or sports figures, or maybe a military hero would have a particular glory with his conquests. But that's not really what this is. Glory in the Bible has with it this understanding of a bright, shining light. And we kind of get to that idea when we say something like, he's really got the spotlight on him. That's it. It's glory. It's light. In Jewish rabbinical language, they would use this term Shekinah. You've probably heard that term before. And they would use that language to refer to the presence of God settling among the Hebrew people after the Exodus. His Shekinah would be there. Interesting, it's not in the Pentateuch. The word Shekinah is not in the first five books of the Bible. But the rabbis used that term, just like we use the term Trinity to describe the triune nature of God. They used this term Shekinah to describe the settled presence and brightness of God among his people. And something would happen when God would be among his people there as he dwelt in the tabernacle with, and showed his presence, there would be a brightness of light. Often when they would offer sacrifices to God in atonement for their, their national sins, God would show his approval of those sacrifices with a bright light. We see one such example in Leviticus chapter 9. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, watch this, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offerings and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their face. And John comes into the New Testament and says, we have beheld his glory. This is glory. Jesus came 
with an associated kind of Shekinah, a glory. Now, what is that? Well, we know when he was born and when the angels appeared to the shepherds out in the fields, the glory of the Lord shone around them. When Jesus ministered, there was no doubt glimpses of that Shekinah glory. In fact, the author of Hebrews puts Jesus's ministry in that framework with these words in chapter 1, verse 3. He says this, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact impress of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. But when Charles Wesley wrote those words to his Christmas carol, his Christmas hymn, he talked about this glory being veiled in human flesh. What does that mean? It's remarkable, if we think about it, that John is saying, we saw his glory. But then he begins to describe him being veiled in human flesh. So what kind of glory is he talking about? Is he talking about the glory that kind of slipped out when he performed his miracles and healings? Certainly that's part of it. John himself was one of the three witnesses of the transfiguration where they literally saw the shining brilliance and brightness and the glory of Christ transfigure before them. But interestingly, John doesn't even record that account in his gospel. So I think John may be thinking about something else besides just brightness and brilliance when he's talking about the glory of Jesus. You see, Jesus manifested glory not only through his miraculous works and through his healings, but listen, through his humble, obedient servant life. And John says, I saw that, and that's glory. You know, to us, a glorious person is one who rises above the crowds. Somebody with great glory is one who ascends to heights of prominence or popularity or position or power. But Jesus showed us a higher glory. His glory is one that he already possessed those positions, and he laid it to the side and humbled himself to become a man. He had the power to create galaxies, yet he endured the ridicule of public scorn. He allowed his heart to break as he wept over rejecting Jerusalem. He allowed his body, his hands, and his feet to be nailed to a Roman cross by those who were his very creatures, who he knit together in their mother's womb. That's glory. That's glory. And it gets really to the crux of why he took on human flesh? Why was he incarnated? Have you ever wondered that? Why did God take on a body? Here's why. Don't miss this. God took on a body so that he could die. God took on a body. Jesus was incarnated so that he could take the punishment for your sin and for my sin. That was so he could die for sinners. In fact, look at this next slide. The Son of God became the Son of Man so the children of Adam could become the children of God. This is why he was incarnated. This is why he took on human flesh. So real glory, lasting glory, essential glory that Jesus manifested was him becoming a human being and offering humble service, living a life of devotion for others. And you know what that means? That's exactly how we live glorious lives as well. We don't live glorious lives by some fantastic display up on a church platform or in a tent meeting. 
We're not living glorious lives if we had a blue check on our Twitter account. We're not living glorious lives if we surpass 100,000 followers on Instagram. We live glorious lives like Christ lived when we humbly give ourselves away to others. When we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, deny those prideful obsessions and worldly pursuits, serving others sacrificially, that's real glory in the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, I think we need to be reminded daily, hourly, what the real fruit of the Spirit is. We all know it. Look at Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. There is no pursuit of personal grandeur in those fruit of the Spirit. There is no pursuit of having my way above anybody else's way. It's humility. It's humble. There's a story told of two brothers in England in the early 19th century. And these two brothers, the older one, really wanted to pursue worldly glory and power. His name was John. They both had the last name of Taylor. And John Taylor pursued worldly glory and power through politics. And he was actually elected eventually to be in England's parliament, to sit in what would be their Congress. His brother, however, rejected worldly power and fame and glory and instead chose to live in obscurity for the sake of Christ in a place called China. His name was Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor lived his life in China. He pushed away worldly ambition. He pushed away worldly wealth. He pushed away worldly glory and lived for the glory of God. Years later, one particular biographer was looking for information on Hudson Taylor's older brother, John, who had such political prominence. And he couldn't hardly find anything until finally he discovers him in an old encyclopedia. And his listing in this encyclopedia didn't talk about his positions of power. It didn't talk about his achievements in parliament. It just simply said, John Taylor, Hudson Taylor's brother. (laughs) Hudson pursued a glory that is far beyond this planet, far beyond this world. But as we think about Jesus being a manifestation of glory, think about, again, this connection to the Old Testament, the glory that was manifest in the tabernacle, the glory that was manifest among the people. Do you remember how one time in Exodus chapter 33, Moses, the deliverer, prayed an incredibly bold prayer? He prayed this, God, show me your glory. Remember that prayer? Show me your glory. And God said, oh, you can't handle my glory. You can't handle it. You cannot see my glory. And he says, but this is what I'll do for you. I'll hide you in a cleft of a rock. I'll pass by. And as I pass by, I will reveal my glory by proclaiming my name to you. And Moses says, good enough for me, right? So in Exodus chapter 34, the next chapter. Notice how God fulfills his promise and gives a glimpse of his glory, proclaiming his name and his nature. He says this to Moses, the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Now, when we think about God displaying his glory, that's probably not how we would think he would display it. We probably wouldn't think God would display it in that way. Rather, by displaying with awesome power, blazing fire, consuming the adversaries, overwhelming strength. No, when God displays his glory, he displays it and it looks a lot like Jesus. A lot like Jesus. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving sins, who does not clear the guilty. He does have righteous anger against all forms of sin and abuse and neglect and injustice. This is Jesus, and this is the apex of his glory. John, he says, I'm an eyewitness. I've seen it. I've seen the glory. And this is exactly why Jesus came, a manifestation of glory. Here's the second thing. We hail the incarnate deity because in Jesus we see a personification of grace. A personification of grace. As Christians, we love this word grace, right? We use the word grace. We talk about grace. We say grace before we eat a meal. We name our churches grace. You got Grace Baptist Church, Grace Fellowship, Grace Bible Church, Grace Community Church. All Grace, 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 grace. Why? Because it is such a fundamental part of the Christian life. Did you know this term grace, charis in Greek? Grace is used 200 times in the New Testament. But interestingly, guess how many times this term grace is used in the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Any guesses? Okay, I'll tell you. Five. The word grace is used 200 times in the New Testament. It's used only five times in the four gospel accounts. Matthew doesn't use it at all. Mark doesn't use it at all. Luke, he uses it one time in chapter 2 when he talks about the 12-year-old boy Jesus. He grew in grace and knowledge. John uses it four times. And the four times John uses it is right here in this passage we're studying. Look at verse 14. He says of Jesus that he was full of grace and truth. Verse 16, here's two of them. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Verse 17, he says grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So why does the word grace appear so few times in the gospel accounts? Here's why. Because grace was personified before them. Grace was there. Grace is all through all four Gospels. But it's not a concept of grace. It's not a didactic of grace. It's not a teaching about grace. It's a personification of grace. Jesus is grace. And his fullness of grace. The embodiment of grace. This is exactly the way Paul described to his son in the faith, Titus, what characterized Jesus' incarnation. Jesus is coming. In Titus chapter 2, he says this, For the grace of of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. When Jesus appeared, grace appeared. Grace came through Jesus. And when grace came through Jesus, listen, it's altogether sufficient. It's altogether complete. It's enough to meet every need. And this is exactly what John has communicated in verse 16. This idea is this, for from his fullness 
we have all received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. That English word upon there in verse 16, the Greek word underneath it is the word anti, from which we get our English word anti. So you've heard of antiseptic, antifreeze, antiviral. We've heard those words, right? And we may think the word anti means to cancel something. Antiviral is supposed to cancel or eliminate viruses. Antifreeze is supposed to eliminate freezing. But what the word anti there literally means is in place of, or instead of, or over against. So think about this. This is what John's communicating here. We have grace in place of grace. Grace on top of grace. Grace instead of grace. Let me try to illustrate it like this. Y'all know my dad is from Switzerland, and I've had the joy several times to go to Switzerland with him. And on one of those occasions, uh, Amy went with me. Actually, a couple of occasions, Amy's gone with me to Switzerland. If you ever go to Switzerland, this is what you must do. You must take a gondola all the way up into the Alps. Take a gondola ride up into the Alps. You, you have to do this if you're there. Whatever it costs, take out a loan, take a gondola ride up to the Alps. So when Amy went with me the first time, we, of course, did this at Jungfrau Alp. And when you get to the top of this Alp and you get to the observation point, you look out and all you can see are snow-covered Alps. You look in front of you and there's an Alp. And then next there's another Alp. And after that, there's another Alp. It's mountain after mountain after mountain after mountain. And once you look at one, you're like, this is a great mountain. Wait, there's a bigger one behind it. In an infinitesimally bigger way. Grace upon grace is mountains and mountains of grace. And friend, if you think, I've done too much, I've gone too far, listen, there is grace upon grace upon grace for you. Grace upon grace, mountains of grace for me. Well, just what is grace? How would you define grace? You've probably heard the acrostic with the four let- five letters of grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, and I like that. But here's my definition of grace. Grace is this. God gives me what I need instead of what I deserve. God gives me what I need instead of what I deserve. Because I'm a sinner, I deserve death and hell. Because I'm a sinner, I deserve eternal separation from him. But God gives me what I need instead of what I deserve. If you've ever had a casual conversation with me, and you asked me a particular question, I've got a couple of scripted responses to regular questions that people ask in everyday conversation. So, for instance, if you came to me and you said, hey, what you been up to? My scripted response is always about five nine. Five foot nine, that's what I'm up to. I get it. Some of y'all get that at lunch. Um, If you ask me, how you doing? I have a couple responses. One I learned from Pastor Peter Lord. It's this, blessed and very much so. Another scripted response I have to that question, how you doing? Better than I deserve. And that's the truth for all of us. We are doing better than we deserve. And you know some of these people, and I do too, that have just the exact opposite attitude. I don't deserve this, whatever this is. I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve to have this. I don't deserve this experience. I don't deserve this result. 
Whatever the this may be at this particular moment in this life, they think I don't deserve this. If you slept in a bed last night, if you had four walls and a roof providing shelter, if you had three meals or at least access to three meals yesterday, if you've got running water and electricity in your home, then you are blessed beyond 90% of the people in this planet. If you are able to come here this morning, and you are, free of any persecution or hostility or threat of life, you are doing better than many millions of our brothers and sisters across the world. How are you doing? (laughs) Better than you deserve. In fact, why don't you turn to your neighbor and just simply say, I'm doing better than I deserve. Do you know what that is? Grace. That's grace. And listen, friends, realizing this truth, that you are doing so much better than you deserve, it'll have profound effect and impact in your life. In fact, really, two. These aren't on your outline. You might want to write these down. The first way this really impacts and affects you, when you realize I'm living in grace, I'm doing so much better than I deserve, you will live with fulfillment. Your life will experience all of a sudden, when you start having this mindset, I'm doing so much better than I deserve, you will have great satisfaction in your life, regardless of the situation, regardless of whether you're winning or losing, whether you're having abundance or lack, whether it's raining or it's sunshine or snowing, you will have fulfillment and hope and peace and joy. It'll be like the Apostle Paul, because I've learned in whatever situation to be content. Friends, that's living in grace, living with this realization, I'm doing so much better than I deserve. Here's the second impact or effect this would have. If you start to live with the mindset, I'm doing so much better than I deserve, here's how it will impact your life. You'll start to give grace to other people. When you realize, man, I I could be in in a really bad way, you'll start giving grace to other people. And isn't that what we need in this world? To give grace to other people? In fact, I want you to notice how this was literally fleshed out in the early church in the book of Acts in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 4. Look at Acts 4. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Watch this. And great grace, mega charis, was upon them all. How did they respond living in grace? There was not a needy person among them. The text goes on to say after that that they were selling their homes and their possessions and their extra stuff so that they could meet the needs of those within their community of faith that had any need. Why? Because they were living with great grace. I'm doing so much better than I deserve. Let me sell this piece of property so I can help those in need. This text tells us that we live by grace. I consult several commentaries in my week of study. One of them is this by uh, Kent Hughes. He's a pastor and and Bible scholar. I want you to notice what he said on this passage of Scripture. He said this, When grace flows into one's life, grace also begins to flow out. As the grace you receive flows out to others, more grace will come, and then more grace, and then even more grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? In fact, Martin Luther, the great reformer, in his sermon on this text, notice what he said. This fountain is inexhaustible. 
It is full of grace and truth before God. It never fails. No matter how much we draw from it, it remains a perennial fount of all grace and truth, an unfathomable well, an eternal fountain. The more we draw from it, the more it gives. Grace upon grace. For we who are sinners, who have drunk deeply of this fountain of grace and been transformed by this grace to walk in the realization, I'm doing so much better than I deserve. Guess what? We will give grace to other people. We'll give grace to other people. So John, the eyewitness to Christ, the friend of Jesus, according to his thesis statement in John chapter 20, he said, I write these things to you so that you may believe. And by believing, you will have life in his name. He says, behold, the, the incarnate deity. And in so doing, we see a manifestation of glory, a personification of grace, but thirdly, a revelation of God. There's a revelation of God. Again, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And verse 18 there is really summarizing the consistent teaching of the entire Bible, and specifically the New Testament. The only way to know God is through Jesus. That's it. The only way to know Creator is through His Son, Jesus. Now, I told you before, I think last week, that 40% of John's first chapter deals with John the Baptist, the other John in this gospel account. 40%. And so the next two weeks, the next two Sundays, Lord willing, we'll spend two Sundays looking at John the Baptist's testimony about his cousin, Jesus Christ. But he introduces this concept in this parenthetical statement we see in verse 15. Look at verse 15 again. John, that's John the Baptist, bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, if you're familiar with the other gospel accounts, you likely know that John the Baptist was six months older than his cousin, Jesus. Six months older. He was born six months before Jesus was born. He was conceived six months before Jesus. But yet here he says, he was before me. In that day and in the Hebrew culture, Age meant everything. If you were older, that meant you had more honor. If you were older, that meant you got the greater inheritance. And here, John is six months older, but yet he said, he ranks before me. He's older, but yet he says, he was before me. How is that? John the Baptist knew, don't miss this, that Jesus, the Son of God, existed for all of eternity before he was conceived in his mother's womb. No other human being who has ever walked this planet can say that. You did not exist, regardless of what the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints tells you on your front doorstep. You did not exist before you were conceived in your mother's womb. There are no preconceived, pre-existing human souls or existence or spirit beings. Regardless of what the Hindus will tell you, you have not reincarnated from some previous form some previous person. If you have dreams about a previous life, it's just the pizza you ate last night, all right? There is no preexistence. No human existed before his conception or her conception except one, Jesus. 
And John the Baptist's testimony is this. Jesus has always existed. He ranks before me because he was before me. Jesus himself said, before Abraham was, I am. This is Jesus. And because this is true, that he is the only way to know God because he was at the Father's side. Look again at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus existed eternally at the Father's side. And what this means, friends, is he had the capacity and he had the credentials, and only he had the capacity and the credentials to reveal God to us. And I've told you before, here in the prologue, these first 18 verses, John is introducing some theological themes that he will unpack as he displays the teaching of Jesus throughout his gospel account. One of those theological themes that John will expand on is this one. There is no other way to God but through Jesus. There is no other way to God but through Jesus. So, for instance, in the famous John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In his high priestly prayer, three chapters later, John records these words of Jesus, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so John is introducing this theological reality that only Jesus has the capacity to make the Father known. Why is that? Well, he uses this terminology that's kind of interesting because he was at the Father's side there in verse 18. The word underneath that, side, is is literally the word bosom. We don't use that word bosom in our everyday language, do we? It says he was at the Father's bosom, in the Father's bosom. I I would dare say most of us don't let many people in our bosom, right? We'll let our spouse, our children, until they get a particular age and it's a little awkward, right? Our grandkids, we'll let them to come beside our side in close. And this, it's just talking about this position of intimacy at the Father's side. We've got five grandchildren, and one of the privileges they get from time to time is to spend the night with Papa and Maymay. And when they spend the night with Papa and Maymay, guess what? They sleep in the bed with us. I can tell you I know what it means for them to be by my side. They're kicking me in the side. They're kneeing me in the side. They're elbowing me in the side. I don't know how it happens, but every one of our grandchildren at some time in the night end up perpendicular to me and Amy, right? Y'all, if you're a parent, you've experienced this likely. This phrase, again, denotes this deep level of intimacy. Jesus has forever and always enjoyed intimacy with the Father. And from that place of intimacy, he has the unique capacity to make God known. Muhammad doesn't have that insight. Buddha doesn't have that insight. Confucius doesn't have that insight. Joseph Smith doesn't have that insight. Only Jesus has this insight, and therefore it stands to reason that only those who know God through Jesus will have eternal life. Later, this is exactly what Jesus says in John 12. He says, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Whoever believes in Jesus, trusting completely in him, surrendering to his will, will not remain in darkness. The simplest believer, even the children who are in this room today, by their childlike faith, believing in Jesus, will know the Father, will know God, 
What capacity? What privilege? What grace? Well, let me quote, close this morning with a question. Why did he do it? Why did he go through all this? Why did he take on human flesh so that he could manifest the glory of God to us, so that he could dispense and personify the grace of God to us? So if you were listening, I've already asked and answered this question. Fundamentally, the incarnation is an expression of the nature of God. God is light, so he shines light in our darkness. God is gracious, and by nature, God extends his grace to us through Christ. God is kind, God is merciful, God is compassionate. But of all these things, God is love. God is love. And by love, I'm not talking about what they're singing about on US 101. That ain't love. By love, I'm not talking about some emotion. It's not this concept of a river that, ooh, I fell into it and got swept away by love. That is not love. Love is commitment and sacrifice. When I speak of love, I'm speaking of the sacrificial demonstration that Jesus made on the cross. I'm talking about the work he accomplished through his death, his burial, and resurrection to save your soul. Hail the incarnate deity. Why did he take on human flesh? To die for you. And that leads to my last thought. Jesus entered our world in order that he might bring us to his. Let's go to him in prayer.